News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of something called the Great Stork Derby? It happened almost 100 years ago in Toronto during the Great Depression. It was organized by a local wealthy businessman. And let me tell you, this story is crazy. So let's get all the details now from Canada's history superstar, Craig Baird, host of the podcast Canada History X. Craig, thanks for being back with us. Oh, happy to. Okay, let's talk about this. What, what the heck is the Great Stork Derby? Well, it's this wild contest that happened in the 1920s and 1930s, and essentially it was a contest to give a vast fortune to the woman who had the most children in a 10-year span. I'm sorry, what? This was just some (laughs) random wealthy businessman who decided to do this? Yeah, his name was Charles Miller, and he was kind of an eccentric man. He was a single, he didn't have any family around him. And when he passed away, he left this will that had a lot of strange things in it. Like he gave a house in Bermuda to three men who all hated each other, but to have the house, they had to live together. He gave shares in a brewery to people who supported prohibition. But the biggest thing was the vast majority of his fortune went to a woman uh, who would have the most children in that 10 year span from 1926 to 1936. So it sounds like as he was writing his will, he was chuckling to himself and having a pretty good time. Oh, absolutely he was. And he he was a lawyer, so he made sure that will was ironclad because it went all the way to the Supreme Court to debate whether this was actually even legal, what he did. Okay, so obviously it was. So tell me about the Great Stork Derby. What actually happened when he put this in his will? Well, uh, it was, you know, 1926. A lot of people were not quite in the Great Depression yet, but it was coming. And this was a huge fortune. Like it was millions of dollars in present day funds. So it was very simple. It just had to be a woman who lived in Toronto, uh, who had the most kids. Now, any children who were stillborn or any who were born out of wedlock were not part of this. So they wouldn't count. And it was just kind of keeping track of the vital records and who actually had the most children. So it wasn't a case of like everybody was competing in it. It was just watching who was actually leading the race. Although some did actually eventually start to try and win the the contest. Okay. That's what I'm wondering. So people actually listened to this and thought, I'm going to try to do this. Oh yeah. There was uh, one woman called Lillian Kenny and she had... uh, it's between 11 and 12. They don't know for sure, but 11 and 12 children in 10 years. And she was actively trying to win this contest. She was always in the media. She would charge money for interviews. She was probably the most famous person of the entire contest who was actively trying to, to win it. But there was also Grace Bagnato, who was a very prominent person in the Italian community. She had about 10 children in 10 years. Those two were probably the most famous of the two. And then there were just others who were, you know, trying to win, but weren't really at the forefront. Um, Okay, 10 in 10 years. That exhausts me just thinking about that. (laughs) So did somebody actually win this thing? Yeah, actually. So it wasn't even uh, the two people I just mentioned, Lillian Kenny and Grace Bagnato, because Grace Bagnato was an illegal Italian immigrant. So she was disqualified. And Lillian Kenny had a few stillborn children and some born out of wedlock. So she was disqualified. So it actually came down to it. It came down to a judge who had to choose who won. And it was four different women who would share the prize. They each had uh, nine children in that decade. So it was Anne Catherine Smith, Kathleen Ellen Nagel, Lucy Alice Timlick, and then Isabel Mary McLean. And they all shared about $75,000 each, and that was about $1.5 million today. 
So they shared that, but they didn't got to raise all those kids. Like that's a lot. That's a lot of kids. Yeah, the money certainly helps, though. I would guess so. So did this actually like? Did so many people participate in this? That was there any kind of a baby boom? Well, we don't know how many actually actively participated in it, but of the women who did participate, we know at least about fifty to sixty children were born out of this. Now, how did this, I guess I think about this, how was this even allowed, Craig? Because it seems to me that this is, um, it was a bit dangerous for for some people to do this, especially considering that childbirth back then wasn't always as safe as it could have been. Without a doubt, it was it was dangerous back then and uh, infant mortality and even the mother mortality was was quite high. So it, he, like I said, he was a lawyer, so he made sure that everything he had in there was ironclad. And they it went for years where they was going through the courts debating it. Uh, people would suddenly come out of the woodwork saying they were his cousins and they should get the fortune. Even the Ontario government weighed in saying this was an immoral contest and it shouldn't be allowed. But he was a very smart man and he knew exactly how to close all of those loopholes to ensure that the money that he put forward for the contest went to whoever was going to win it. And do we know how they use the money? Actually, yeah, the four women, uh, the four uh, families actually use the money for a variety of reasons. Most just bought houses, uh, but a lot just bought businesses and actually prospered and their families did quite well. These are people who grew up saving money. So when they suddenly had money, they weren't going crazy with it. Uh, but all of them actually had relatively good lives. But uh, Lillian Kenny actually got a little bit of money because she sued and uh, she blew through her money very quickly, but everybody else kept the money and and did quite well and their children did quite well and and prospered and were able to go to school and to college. So is it possible that out there in Toronto there are people who tell this story because this was their these were their grandparents or their great grandparents? Oh, without a doubt, there's there's probably many children in uh, in now there Toronto would be, right yes. now, yeah, who uh, who are ancestors of these people and who who tell this story, especially the Grace Bognato family. Even though she didn't win, she was a very prominent person in Toronto uh, who spoke, I think, about nine languages, uh, and she was the first woman in Toronto to learn to drive a car. But even though she didn't win, she was one of the more famous people from the contest. That is so cool, Craig. I got to ask, where do you find these stories? Well, I do a lot of reading. I have a lot of Canadian history books and I just, you know, peruse and, and see what stories I can find. And I was aware of this story for a while and I thought it was a really interesting story to tell and, and decided to, to put it out there. Wow. And we don't, you know, what we, I've often said that we don't know enough about our own history there, but are you finding that people have an interest in that these days? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, my, my Twitter following definitely yeah. adds to that. There's, <laughs> there's a very big interest in, in Canadian history. And I think it's just a case that we haven't really talked about it beyond the Heritage Minutes. And, and, you know, there's a lot out there if you just, you know, start to search for it. And pay attention to Craig Baird. Craig, thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. You're going to be hearing the phrase a lot this day, today. It's called the missing middle. And that's because Vancouver City Council unanimously approved a motion last night at their meeting uh, to allow more of the missing middle. It's lower density neighborhoods having up to eight homes on a single lot. So what does this actually mean? What kind of change will you see? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor for ABC. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so what does this mean then? It, will we see some kind of immediate change? Are there already plans in the works for some of these these buildings? Yeah, so what, what uh, Council approved, and you uh, 
said is the terminology is a missing middle, which is gentle density going into single family uh, traditional low density neighborhoods across the city. Uh, so we'll have one uh, zone now instead of having nine different residential zones. It was complicated. We're going to have one. Um, and the changes that multiplexes are allowed as a housing option on those lots um, up to six units in most cases. But it's not, it's a significant change in terms of uh, the fact it goes citywide um, and we're enabling more housing types. But it's not significant in the sense that we allow up to four lots now. So if you look at what's there, if you have laneways, you can have a house in a laneway, you can have a duplex that can have two lock-off suites. So um, this is just providing more choice um, and it provides the ability to build more family-style units. So instead of, uh, and they're ground-oriented, instead of living in a condo and people having a two-bedroom that might be seven, 800 square feet, you can have a family-sized unit um, of 1,000 square feet and have potentially, say, four of those on a lot. Okay, so that is good news then. But how does that work then for neighborhoods? Is that is that an automatic thing? Are there still going to be hoops to jump through? Uh, well, the zoning is in place. So you, you will come forward uh, like you do typically if you are um, looking for a development permit. Uh, but uh, it's allowed now as a use across the city. Uh, if you recall back when we allowed duplexes, um, might be a good example for people to think about. Um, those were made uh, legal across the city, and now this is a legal housing type across those residential zones in every neighborhood. Okay, what, what kind of a difference do you think this is going to make? Well, I think it's a really significant difference for people um, that uh, it's going to fit. So folks that maybe have adult kids at home or kids living in their basement and uh, the laneway was too small and that laneway is going to be 400 square feet bigger. Somebody that um, is getting older and doesn't want to move out of their neighborhood, but they can redevelop and keep multiple generations there. But in terms of pickup, our staff predicted that uh, we might have 150 of these in a year. If they average four units each, you're talking about 600 units. So not dramatic in terms of the number of new housing units that are coming forward, but significant in terms of the flexibility and the difference it will make for um, a lot of people that are in that situation. And what did you hear from from builders on this? Are they ready to go? Is this something that they think they can do? Uh, Yeah, they're excited and they're ready to go. And it was actually really great because our staff produced some fantastic visuals to show what this looks like. Um, We allow up to three stories now, so that's a difference. You typically see two. Um, but some really um, beautiful designs that really fit in. And I think you're going to see a lot of creativity coming forward, just like you've seen with duplex styles and laneways. Um, One of the things that I like as well is that um, this is really bringing them up to um, ground level and they're ground oriented. So uh, from accessibility perspective, aging population, um, that's easy for people to go straight in. So you're not going to see basements where people sort of dug down and you were living subterranean and it was darker. You're going to see more ground oriented, light filled units. That's the key, though, isn't it, what you just said there? It's about the creativity, because do you think it's perhaps it'll be easier for neighbors and neighborhoods to accept this if they, if they see things that look nice? Uh, absolutely, and that's why I think it was really great to see the visuals that uh, our team put together. They did a flyover of a, of a sample block in the city, too, uh, which is accessible on YouTube and on the city's website, and it really brings it to life because it sounded scary for people when you say, you know, four or six units on every yeah. block, but the fact is it's happening now. It's just providing more flexibility for how that space is used. And a 1,000 square feet is a lot more livable for a family uh, than a lot of those small units, and not everybody wants to live in a, in a high-rise or a condo. And what did you hear from people? I know there were a lot of uh, people who came to speak on this motion, and what did you hear? We heard uh, very positive support. Um, we had uh, a lot of speakers that came in support. We had uh, some single-family homeowners um, 
a few of them that were concerned about some of the changes, as I said, uh, but I think it ran about two to one uh, on the correspondence we received. Council got about 400 letters, and um, but more than two-thirds of them were like roundly in favor of this change and said that it was overdue, it was time. And that's, is that a bit of a change? Do you feel like has, has something shifted in terms of public opinion? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I, I do think so. I think that as the housing crisis becomes more acute and, you know, the people that uh, I described, this is going to impact the most, the most personal for, and when they see that their kids are um, not able to live in their neighborhood and they're not just moving across the city, they're moving out of the city. Um, I think that uh, that starts to really shift people's perceptions. Well, it certainly is interesting. I'll take a look at those uh, visuals then. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. You too. That's Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor for ABC. Unanimous approval last night for a plan to allow more of the, quote, missing middle. We Those are like family-sized units, so essentially increasing density on the majority of the zoning in the city building. And you keep, you'll hear eight units, eight units. Well, not every lot will be able to house eight units. It depends on the size of the lot. It'll be between four and eight units, depending on how big the lot is. Uh, ground, more ground level units for people. So no stairs, you know, especially for people who want to downsize into something. More family sized units. That is a huge deal too. That it's not livable to ask people to downsize from their home into 600 square feet, which is, really the most of what's been built over the last 10 years. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh yeah, that music means it's Friday. It means that we're going to talk some politics now. Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, filling in for Vaughn Palmer this week. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. I love that Friday music. That's, it that gets you up and going, How right? you know. And I know yeah. it's hard for you to get up this early in the morning. We appreciate you. I just want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> It's and it's not hard to get up this early. It's just hard to sound intelligent this early in the morning uh, for me. I, I need my a life. lot of coffee to get going. <laughs> story yeah. of my life. I know. I know that feeling. Uh, all right, we have a lot to talk about because this Chinatown stabbing story, which happened Sunday night, uh, all week long, we've been talking about it. There are some new developments. I saw that you had obtained some documents on this. What did you find out? Yeah, yesterday after we finished chatting, actually, I uh, suddenly came into possession of the actual seven-page BC Review Board decision into Blair Evan Donnelly, the man who's charged with the triple stabbing in Chinatown. And it's an interest, it's a fascinating document because yeah. all we knew before this was that he had um, done some horrible things. He had uh, killed his own daughter, stabbed her to death in 2006. He'd been involved in a couple of other incidents with stabbing while he was in custody. He'd been found not criminally responsible uh, due to mental disorder. But we didn't know, and these documents show that uh, in April, so only five months ago, there was a big review with uh, psychiatrists and medical professionals into his current state. And there are this report is filled with all sorts of lines like, um, you know, he requires significant supervision to ensure he does not cause further harm to the public. And he presents a high risk of relapse and a cautious approach is necessary to protect the public and on and on. They call him a significant threat. So it it raises the question, and the question was asked again by uh, Premier David Eby after this came out, how do you have an assessment by the BC Review Board in April that says all of these things about the red flags to public safety here, and then uh, this individual given an unescorted day pass five months later and ends up uh, accused of the stabbing in Chinatown. It seems like the core question, we get hints of how 
this may have happened as we try to piece together the the BC review board process, which I'll be honest with you, um, I've never really had to go through the BC review board very much. Uh, I don't think the public even knows that it exists in most cases. Uh, and it's a bit of a, a labyrinth of red tape and bureaucracy and uh, and nonsense. But the question seems to be when I read through all these things too, is that how can the board decide one thing and then somehow, without really explaining how or why, somebody decided otherwise and he still ended up doing something that they said he shouldn't be doing? Yeah, there's two issues that appear to be kind of the root of this. So you have this assessment by the board and really the assessment is designed to say, look, the state has this person in psychiatric care and should we continue to do that? And what, how has his progress been? And the progress has been not great. Um, he uh, still believes that God is asking him to do things like kill people. And so this this assessment concluded that he needs to remain in psychiatric care and he's going to stay at the uh, the forensic psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam. That's the point of the of the assessment. Uh, and it talks about, you know, has testimony from doctors. Then there is the, the what's called the disposition of the review board, which is this one-page document, and it puts all the conditions on that order that he continued to be held in custody at the hospital. And the review board chose to put as one of the conditions, it's number two, that at the discretion of the director of the hospital, he may grant escorted and unescorted access to the community depending on the mental condition and having regard to the risk of the accused and the risk he poses to himself or others. So you have this decision to continue to keep him in the hospital. You, for whatever reason, put a clause in that allows the director discretion to let the person out. And the director of the hospital, who is, um, I don't know that person's name, but they're identified here as the director of adult forensic psychiatric services, chooses to allow him to go out and exercise that discretion. That seems to be the crux of how this happened. Now, there's no paper record of how the director decided to do that. Um, there's not even, like, I'll say this about the BC Review Board. I, I could not, if I was them, have handled this worse because they continue to not tell anyone about how this happened. They don't make these documents, your public documents, public. You have to get them through leaks. They don't explain why they are written, why the conditions are here. They don't They don't do anything to uh, handle public confidence. So we don't know why the review board puts this condition in, and we don't know why the director of the hospital grants it, because no one will say anything. They're all just, you know, gone to ground. Uh, and that is why Premier Eby, and you heard in the news hit before the segment, has got Bob Rich, the former Abbotsford police chief, to get in here and answer these questions, because you're not getting them from the review board, which is just sitting there, um, stonewalling uh, pretty much everyone. Which is what they always do, but I'm, I'm once again shocked that they can't see the writing on the wall on this one, that this one is different. We're back now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, talking about the fallout from what happened in Chinatown on Sunday night. So uh, you mentioned there, Rob, that Premier David Eby has appointed Bob Rich, the former police chief from Abbotsford, to look into this. What are the parameters of that? Well, it, we don't know quite yet what the terms of reference are, but he basically said he'll be given blanket access to anything he needs, anyone he needs, and he wants this review done very quickly. Because the second part of the review that he's asking him to do is double check to make sure that the review board 
has not done this somewhere else, that it hasn't, uh, you know, put red flags all over someone as dangerous. And yet the forensic hospital is exercising its condition to let them out. Is that happening anywhere else in the province? And if so, get on it. We need to know because we need to stop it. Uh, and so those two things comprise the review by Mr. Rich. He was asked, the premier, well, maybe we should take a look at the old review board itself, sitting there quietly watching public confidence crater into the ground over this thing, saying nothing, issuing no statements, not investigating the matter itself, not expressing any concern whatsoever, refusing to make public its own documents that are public documents. Um, and he said, yeah, I mean, we can get to that, but let's let's start with the, you know, the, the core issue here and then go from there. But I think you can make a pretty good argument at this point that like, look, there are a bunch of experts that work for the BC Review Board, psychiatrists, medical professionals, people like that. That's fine. You know, obviously they, they're highly trained individuals, but there is a provincially appointed board here that serves at the pleasure of the premier and the cabinet. They're just cabinet orders. They are people who are not necessarily special. The chair is Brenda Edwards, a former BC liberal, um, you know, civil servant in that government, um, fire them, you know, like how, if your organization goes through what this organization has gone through and it's an agency of the state, right? It's exercising on behalf of you and I and everyone else, our power to care for and treat these people who are found not criminally responsible for what they've done. And this happens. And, and just like any goodwill, any, any sense of justice, you know, justice having to be seen to be done as well disappears, you're in a bit of a crisis. And I think you could take a a pretty good argument here that there's a bunch of lawyers on this board. There's a law professor, there's a former judge, there's a bunch of other people from different groups. Some of them aren't even lawyers at all. They're just uh, former government employees or, or whatever. Put in somebody, some other group, that is willing to kind of, I think, engage the province in a better way as part of this review. I, I don't think David, I think David Eby's done all the right things in reacting quickly to this, but how much is the review board going to be changed without a more cooperative group that understands the difficulties of what this is? So there, there that question, the, the premier hasn't quite got to mm. what he wants to do with the review board, but I will say in his defense, David Eby doesn't shy away from dismissing uh, no. people yeah, exactly. <laughs> who We've aren't seen that doing before. their job. So it's not off the table. Uh, it's just, um, you know. If I were them, I, I would it. start being more forthcoming if I were them. I, I would start opening up and, and talking about what happened well, here. Uh, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, your colleague, uh, Ramina Dea at Global, has essentially stormed into the review board office for a couple of days in a row, demanding someone talk publicly about this and getting That's told what you to send do. an email. Yeah, right? getting told <laughs> to send an email to an address that no one responds to. Uh, that doesn't cut Ridiculous. it for a public agency. And I think that is a larger issue that the premier will have to deal with. Okay, there's that. And then the other big news yesterday was in talking about public safety was the NDP government deciding that, yeah, you know what? You're right. No more drug use in public places. <laughs> that is an epic climb down by the NDP government that was kind of gaslighting us all a little bit on this issue. I mean, it wasn't, it was only a few months ago that if you raise the prospect that decriminalization was causing or contributing to a rise in open drug use around playgrounds and parks, you were accused by an NDP cabinet minister in the House of Fearmongering. And it turns out that that is accurate, that mayors rose up of all political stripes, including New Democrat mayors, to say decrim has produced unintended consequences of open drug use in areas that our municipal bylaw officers can't control because of what's happened. 
And finally, you know, the NDP government realized this. And yesterday they announced a 15 meter buffer zone around playgrounds and water parks and skate parks. 15 meters, half of a regulation size basketball court. You can continue to consume drugs 16 meters away from children. Um, I don't know why 15 meters was chosen. The premier was asked yesterday and he said, look, like, we're just trying to get this done. I have legislation coming in the fall that's going to expand it in a more sensical way, uh, including the like transit stops and whatever, because this is arbitrary number out of thin air. Right. So they're just doing this now and then they're going to actually expand it. Yeah. And, I, you know, like good on them. I think the mayors yesterday uh, said great, terrific. But the process of dragging the NDP government kicking and screaming through using its initial defense that we see quite a bit of accusing people who criticize or question its policies as fear mongering. Why do you not support, um, you know, trying to help people reduce their stigma on drugs? That wasn't the issue. You can also support decrim and raise a question about why there are people in playgrounds um, using drugs and why municipal bylaw officers are being told and mayors are being told they can't, they don't have the authority to do anything about it. Uh, and that disconnect, I think, made the government look um, uh, not particularly responsive. And it allowed BC United to kind of gain some ground, I but, think, on that issue the last while. But you made such a good point about this uh, earlier in the week, too. This is the, the, I guess, the trap for people in the opposition is that, yeah, you can put forth ideas, but you also run the risk of the government kind of taking your idea. Well, the ultimate idea from BC United, which this NDP government will not touch, is to end the decrim experiment. So that'll be the ballot box issue. Kevin Falcon will look at this and he'll do whatever he wants with it. But the end voter um, proposition is going to be, do you want to keep going on this path or do you want to just cancel it? And I think that the NDP are not going to get to that point. So I expect this fall we will see a more robust series of bubble zones around different areas. Why... We didn't anticipate that uh, in doing this in January is a question that the government doesn't really want to answer, I don't think. There was other metrics um, released yesterday on how we're going to gauge the success of decrim because it has not done anything to the record overdose death exactly. rate. Um, those metrics, which are just looking at the other day, don't make a lot of sense, to be honest with you. They're, they're very difficult to understand. Things like stick, measuring people's stigma in surveys on the street and um, interactions with police and things. I'm not sure. I think yeah. it's going to be increasingly hard if this continues for the ADB government to prove that this has worked when all the evidence in the real world indicates it's having difficult consequences. And, and that is, that'll be a challenge for them going forward. It certainly will be. Uh, Rob, thank you. Okay. Take care. That is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. There are lots of stuff in politics to talk about today. There'll be more follow on all that. Keep listening here for the very latest. And if you want to weigh in, of course, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. For us to check in and find out what's been going on in the United States this past week. And that means we're checking in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. How are you? It's Friday. <laughs> I'm going to say that means good. Uh, let's <laughs> talk about what's happening in Vegas, because that is not good. I've been following. I was just there uh, about three weeks ago, which is why I've been following this story so closely. But this is a cyber attack the size of which I don't think we've really heard about before. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a 
you know, a, a, a lame phrase to use, but what happens in Vegas apparently leaves Vegas um, in a very destructive kind of way uh, because the cyber attack that struck, um, that has struck a couple of different um, casinos and hotels, Caesars was one, MGM is another. It's not just in Vegas, though. It extends outwards. The MGM here uh, in Washington also impacted by this. Um, but it's a big cyber attack. We know social security numbers were taken. We know that there was player information taken. We know that um, the cyber attack, at least, that MGM shut down some of the playing floor. Slot machines were impacted. People couldn't access their rooms because the key system was taken offline. Uh, in the Caesars one, uh, we know that millions of dollars was paid um, as a ransom to a cyber group that that managed to infiltrate the system. Caesar says it's not going to have any impact on their you know six billion dollar profit from last year. But at the end of the day, this is a big deal that the FBI is now investigating. And and we don't know when it's going to end. It's been going on all week long, right? Yeah. And look, the, the issue is with these kinds of cyber attacks is that you can pinpoint where it may be coming from, but it's kind of like a wave where it ripples down. It can go further. It can impact other casinos. Who's to say that this is not going to target the next casino, you know, somewhere across the United States originating from somewhere else uh, in the world? You know, there's there's reports that there are potential U.S. Um, uh, backers behind this, that it could be towards the United Kingdom as well. But but ultimately here, this is something that the feds are now looking into because hacks have become a real issue around the United States. And, and it becomes that question of, do you pay a ransom to protect the information or do you not pay the ransom and hope that the information ultimately just kind of winds itself up being deleted? It, it, it's, it's a problem that a lot of companies have to kind of face when they're dealt with the problem. Oh, of course. Okay. And so people are thinking about going to Las Vegas. They really should check make sure which hotel they're going to and whether everything is up and running. Uh, other stories out of the United States this week. I guess we have to get an update on how that presidential campaign is going. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's going uh, still. Uh, there are hurdles for for both of the leaders right now uh, on the Trump side. Uh, you know, we found out that he is going to be separated from some of the group that are being uh, uh, prosecuted in Atlanta. Uh, so, you know, Donald Trump will get a bit of a delay here. Nonetheless, he still is in good polling um, situations right now. There's some polling that came out from Real Clear Politics and from CNN over the last couple of days that show Donald Trump in a you know in a in a match if it were to happen right now is a couple of points ahead of Joe Biden. Joe Biden, on the other hand, uh, is facing new hurdles. Not only does he have the UAW strike in the United States, his son was indicted on gun crimes uh, yesterday. Joe Biden is facing the threat of a possible impeachment here. The government could potentially be shutting down. So the 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 kind of hurdles are getting closer and closer together for the sitting president. For the former president, there are legal hurdles that are continuing to mount at the end of the day though there's still 13 months until the election right and anything can happen as we know in the united states in that 13 months uh you, you talked about the uh, troubles on the biden side of things so i keep hearing about impeachment what is going on well, I mean, look, Republicans are trying to and have been threatening to impeach President Biden for since before he was even in office here. Uh, and we heard from Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House this week, make this threat that instead of bringing an impeachment vote to the floor where it would fail because he doesn't have the support from within his own party, uh, that he would just have House committees expand their investigations into the president. They believe that there was malfeasance and wrongdoings linked to Hunter Biden's business dealings. 
uh, you know, before Joe Biden was president. Ultimately, this is an attempt to try and make good on threats that Republicans have been making. The issue here is, is there a there there? Can they A, get their get themselves together to, you know, do this as a coordinated effort or B, if there's no information and they're not able to get a vote to the floor, does that look like an exoneration of President Biden? Republicans have to be careful here that they haven't overplayed their hand because that could threaten whatever they're trying to do when it comes to the election next year. Yeah. Do they have the votes for this? Well, they don't have the votes to bring it to the floor uh, for, for an actual impeachment vote. So they could carry out these investigations. But when it comes to moving articles of impeachment, uh, Republicans could fail. There are people like Matt Gates, you know, a, a very conservative Republican who has threatened to actually overthrow Kevin McCarthy's speakership if they bring impeachment articles to the floor because they feel that things are not just being done properly here or that things are being done out of order. So, I mean, they don't have the votes to, to carry out an impeachment, and this could have an impact not only on Kevin McCarthy's political future, but the political futures of dozens of people from within the Republican Party in the House. Okay, and just staying away from politics here for the next story, this was the other one that seemed to capture people's imagination this past week. That, that was quite the manhunt that was going on in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I mean, look, the video of the escape uh, was wild watching oh, him scale yeah. with his hands and feet, you know, uh, uh, horizontal, uh, vertically up a wall from a jail. Uh, and this lasted nearly two weeks. And, and we actually heard from the suspect say that he would bury himself under leaves and under twigs in the forest. And there would be police officers almost stepping on him as they were carrying out their active search. Look, at the end of the day, uh, during the search, no one was hurt. It was remarkable that no shots were fired as the suspect was ultimately ultimately captured here. Uh, and it shows that, you know, a coordinated effort amongst police forces uh, can carry out the good. The question that we're actually hearing here in Washington is, why aren't other police forces doing this? There's actually somebody on the run in D.C. who escaped from a facility uh, more than a week ago that hasn't been caught yet, and it's not getting the same media attention. So, you know, why does one get attention when the other one doesn't? Those are the kind of breakdowns now that are being looked at after this remarkable um, apprehension. Do you think it was the video? But do you think that's what it was? That when people saw him, the way he kind of spider climbed up, they, that just somehow just captured the public's imagination? It, it did. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, this is this is probably a terrible thing to say, but sometimes in the summertime on a slower news day, things can capture the oh, attention and start true. to roll, roll uh, you know, kind of roll onto the networks and become a big story. But ultimately, too, this was a big deal. This was somebody who was in jail on murder charges um, and they wanted to ensure that there was going to be no public safety threat here. Uh, and, and, you know, essentially police did what they had to do. Now, look, there is some controversy over a selfie that was taken with the uh, with the uh, law enforcement officers with the suspect that they had cuffed that's kind of creating a bit of a buzz but but at the end of the day i mean look they we were able to apprehend this suspect without resorting to any kind of lethal force here um you know and this could be something that other police forces look at to how they carry out their own manhunts and apprehensions oh, that's fascinating reggie thank you thank you have a great weekend that's reggie Cicchini, our washington correspondent for global news this is Mornings with Simi. We are heading into cold and flu season, or maybe you've already been hit by this, right? The first thing most of us do is head to the medicine cabinet. But then this week came the news out of the United States and their Food and Drug Administration that a popular and common decongestant ingredient is ineffective. 
So, like me, you probably wondered, well, what does that mean? Were we all just taking placebos all this time? Dr. Michelle Arnaud is a professor and associate chair in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what is this ingredient that everybody is talking about? This ingredient is a phenylephrine. It's a chemical structure that's very similar to the molecules in our body that float around to cause different actions and activities, one of which is to cause a little bit of vasoconstriction. So your blood vessels constrict a little bit when this compound binds to its target on the blood vessel. You make it sound like it's effective. Is it not? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is the rub. So, um, you know, ideally when an individual has a cold or an allergy, they initiate an immune response, our little body's army to combat um, the virus or the allergen. And when doing that, it causes the vessels to dilate um, and swelling to happen. And this swelling causes leakiness, and this is where we get the congestion. So in an ideal world, in theory, um, you know, something like phenylephrine would come along in the nasal passage and cause those passages to shrink and the congestion would go away. The vessels would contract and the congestion would go away. It wouldn't be as leaky. Um, The issue is that, um, number one, the drug when it's taken orally, so when you take it as a pill and you swallow it, not a lot of the drug actually gets to where we want it to go, to those nasal passages. Um, And so there's a question um, about how effective it actually is within those nasal passages, just because about 70%, 60 to 70% of the drug is actually lost while it's kind of being in your gut and being transported to those nasal passages. Right. I guess I just wonder, though, like if we if it weren't effective for some people, like why would people still be taking it? Clearly, some of us feel like it works. Well, that might just be the placebo effect. You well, know, that's we have amazing. This, <laughs> we, we have this effect in uh, pharmacology and in, pharma, in pharmacy, you know, that's called the placebo effect where you take something and you feel better, not necessarily because of the action of the drug itself, but because you've taken something. So it's kind of a psychosocial response to actually taking something. And really good science and really good research compares an active ingredient like phenylephrine to a placebo drug to make sure that it's actually better than this placebo or this candy pill that's being taken. So what could happen here then? What could be the result of all this? Well, you know, there's two, you know, kind of, you know, there's a number of different things that can happen. So one is phenylephrine in a nasal spray has over a number of studies shown to be quite effective. Um, it's not going through that first pass. Like it's not being broken down on the way to its site of action. So that nasal spray can still be used for a couple of days uh, when individuals have congestion. There's also the alternative of, you know, steroids, but also um pseudoephedrine, um, which is another drug. So often when we look at cold remedies for congestion, we see the drug and then it says PE, which right. stands for phenylephrine, or you see the drug name and it says PS, which stands for pseudoephedrine. So pseudoephedrine has a work slightly different than phenylephrine. It's a similar type of compound, but it works slightly different. And it has been shown to be effective for reducing that congestion. Pseudoephedrine, however, is also can also have a little bit of stimulate, uh, stimulation. 
So people might have insomnia when they take it or they might be a little bit agitated. Um, and at high doses, you know, can also act at blood vessels that are found other places um, in the body. Like, right. So individuals who are on hyper, who are hypertensive or on who are on cardiac medicine shouldn't probably be taking pseudoephedrine. I guess what this just illustrates as well, Dr. Arnaud, is that how challenging this field of developing medications is because after all these years, these are still the two main uh, medications that are out there for decongestants? Right. Well, so phenylephrine really came into more popularity kind of in the last 10 to 15 years when particularly in the States, pseudoephedrine became more difficult to access because it's actually can be used as a precursor to illicit drugs like methamphetamine. And so when that happened, um, there a lot of drug companies increased the phenylephrine thinking, oh, based off of previous studies done in the 1960s and 1970s in-house. So the drug company that um, created the drug did the experiments. And based off those experiments, they said, oh, well, it's effective. Re- more recent stu- uh, studies, particularly done in the last 10 years, have actually shown that, you know, when we use a more rigorous benchmark, that this uh, phenylephrine isn't as effective as we initially thought it was going to be. So is there actually a, a good way of treating a cold or is it just that classic, just, you know, rest and, and drink that glass of orange juice? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few things, you know, treat the symptoms, lots of water, lots of rest. Um, you know, the water helps, you know, decrease the congestion as well because it makes the mucus a little more fluidy. Um, and also, you know, you, you can take pain relievers. If it's really bad, you can use the nasal phenylephrine spray for, um, you know, two to three days, or you can try using pseudoephedrine. Some people don't like using pseudoephedrine because it is a little bit more of a stimulant and individuals have can sometimes have difficulty sleeping when they take it. Oh, I've had that happen to me for sure. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for your time this morning. All right, you're welcome. Take care. Really appreciate that. That's Dr. Michelle Arnaud, who's a professor and associate chair in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto, talking about that news out of the United States about a popular decongestant, which the FDA down in the U.S. says is not effective or it's ineffective. And yes, there will be some repercussions of that reformulations and probably fewer choices for you when you head to the medicine cabinet when you have a cold this season. This is Mornings with Simi. It's always been a balance, right, to try to figure out your course schedule, especially when you're getting into grade 12. Like, what do you have to take? What will your electives be? There's something new on that mandatory list this year, too. It's Indigenous Studies, a course that has been years in the making. And we're going to learn about that process now and what's in this latest course. Joining us is Joe Crona, who's an education consultant and author of Waiwa, Indigenous Pedagogies and Act for Reconciliation and Anti-Racist Education. Joe, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, how long has it has this kind of course been in the process? Well, the the, the implementation of this specific grad requirement has been a couple of years, but um, there have been First Nations in the province and ed- education organizations that have been advocating for having an Indigenous-focused graduation requirement for many, many years now. Um, there are within this requirement there are a suite of courses that students can choose from to satisfy the requirement and they can be taken in grades 10 11 or 12. All right and so how do you develop a curriculum for something like this when something is mandatory I feel like that's going to take a lot of work. Absolutely I think we were really fortunate in BC in that 
Um, over 10 years ago, there was development of an English First Peoples 12 course, which is an Indigenous-focused um, course in the English language arts stream that satisfied graduation requirements. And, and there's been um, BC First Nations Studies 12. Uh, there are now other courses at grade 10, 11, 12, uh, level that are all indigenous focused, but they they may satisfy a social studies requirement, like they may be in the social studies stream of courses, or they may satisfy an English language arts requirement. Um, so there there's some flexibility in what course would meet that requirement. The requirement can also be met by a First Nations language course, and there are a number of those that are offered in the public system around the province. And school districts can also develop a locally developed graduation uh, level course that would meet the requirement when they develop that in collaboration with a local First Nation. See, a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so can you explain to me here, Joe, what, what will somebody learn? What will a student learn taking this course? It, it depends. It depends which course they take for the requirement. Um, so, for example, if they take an English... Many school districts right now are offering the English First Peoples 10, 11, or 12 as, as the option for students. And there they would learn all the skills and competencies that you would take in, in any other English language arts course, but you'd be focusing on authentic Indigenous literatures, oral and written, visual. Um, so what's really exciting about this is it's not... Um, relegating this learning to like a history course. It's not relegating it to any other specific type. If you're, if for example, students are taking the English language arts 10, 11, or 12 course, they would be learning about, you know, the history of this country through um, different stories um, of of Indigenous peoples across the country and across the continent, but they'd also be learning about the contemporary context of BC and Canada, and and that's a really important piece because that's going to help us take good steps moving forward in the future as well. Yeah, so Joe, what do you think the result of this, how will we benefit from this? Oh, goodness. Well, one of the things um, I think that's, that's part of the, the understanding of why this is important is it helps address the gap that has been in our education, K-12 education system and, and most post-secondary systems, you know, for decades and decades. Um, what we don't want is more learners coming out of our K-12 system without the, the knowledge and understanding, the breadth of knowledge and deep understanding of Indigenous peoples in this province and country. That, ha- that happened for so many of us coming through the K-12 system and, po- or, and possibly post-secondary systems as well. And, and when we think about you know, the impact of our education system, the more knowledge and understanding that learners have when they leave it, you know, the better our larger society ends up being. And the more, um, I think, the more we are able to move forward in a really good way uh, with reconciliation in this country. Is there a way to tailor this course so that different students in different parts of the province will learn about the Indigenous people in those areas? Absolutely, yeah. So within within any of the uh, provincial uh, approved courses that would meet the requirement, there is an element of connecting with local nations on whose territory a school or a school district operates. So that's part of it. And then if a school district or um, an independent school decides to develop a local locally developed course that would meet the requirement, that course has to be developed in collaboration with the local First Nation so that um, we're ensuring that the priorities of the local nations are reflected within those courses as well. It does feel like this was a long time coming, doesn't it, Jill? Like, I'm thinking oh. back to when I was in high school and it was always like, we, don't, we didn't really learn a lot about our history. Absolutely. You know, we've been, we've been talking about for a number of years since the, the 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've been talking about reconciliation through education. And there have been movements within BC, BC's education system, you know, uh, an increase in Indigenous perspectives and content within the curriculum. But it's still kind of a little hit and miss. And, and you know, there have been elective courses available, like, for example, the English First Peoples course has been um, a provincially recognized course, meets graduation uh, requirements, meets post-secondary entrance admission requirements for about over 12 years now. But fewer than 5% of students are graduating with an Indigenous-focused course. So we've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, I think, for over a decade, how important this is. But we had to get to a place of saying, you know what, it. If this is important, then it needs to be reflected in what's mandated in our system. And is this something that is already reflected at the post-secondary level, for instance? Uh, in some in some areas, there are some programs and some post-secondaries that um, require an Indigenous-focused course. Um, you know, it might be within a, a law program, for example. You might have to have an Indigenous-focused course. What we're hoping to see is that it becomes more widely reflected in all post-secondaries across the country. So it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Yeah. As it always seems to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's exciting is that BC is, is often leading in education um, in, the, in, the, in many part, education jurisdictions in this country, and, and we're doing that here right now. Um, I think there are going to be other provinces that look towards what BC is doing um, as, as a model, as a potential model for a way forward. Sounds interesting. Joe. thank you so much for your time on that. Thank you. That is Joe Crona, who's an education consultant and author of YUWA, Indigenous Pedagogies, an act for reconciliation and anti-racist education. There is a new mandatory grade 12 course uh, for students, high school students this year, and it involves Indigenous studies. And that has been a long time coming. I wish there had been something like that when I was in high school. I think it would have been fascinating to take that, to learn more about, you know, Indigenous peoples here in B.C., didn't really learn a lot about that when I was in high school at all. This is Mornings with Simi. Our Vancouver Whitecaps currently sit in sixth place in the Western Conference and MLS standings. They are in Toronto. Uh, they are good to go. They are ready. They're going to win this thing. And our coach, Vanny Sartini, is with us now to talk about that. Right? You are ready. Yeah, I'm ready, but I'm also touching wood. You know, you know we never I know. know. And now I'm going to be sorry that I said that. I don't, I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, you gave, you gave us even more confidence. No problem. Okay, good. Good to know. Okay, because it's still like, you know, we're sitting in sixth spot with 38 points, but, you know, even behind us, seven and eight, it's just 37 points. Like, the fight never ends, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 standing is very tight, and... Uh, uh, the good thing is that um, we we have to play more games than everyone else because everyone played at least one or two games more than us. So uh, I would say that potentially we could be winning tomorrow kind of third or fourth in the standings. But uh, Now, now who should be knocking wood? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you, you, you can do it. You know? Okay, I'll do it this time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a very important game. It's... Uh, we, it's the start of a very busy stretch. In the next uh, three weeks, we're going to play seven times, and uh, between now and October the seventh. So yeah, that's that's going to define our our season. Okay, yeah. and what do you think has made the difference in these last little while uh, since coming back from that break when you weren't doing league play? Um, it seems like the team has kind of gelled together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're playing very well lately, to be honest. In uh, it's it's a longer period at the end that we're playing well from from June 
Then in the League's Cup, we did well, and then we came back and we did well again. There's a lot of uh, confidence. The guys are, uh, I would say, um, they look even more mature than the beginning when we were playing well, but where things were not going well, uh, sometimes we didn't react very well. These times, is uh, even when uh, we have to, let's say, quote-unquote, suffer, we are, we, are, we are good at that, and uh, we can... Uh, we can uh, bring uh, results uh, results home. So I, again, I'm confident. I'm still knocking wood. I'm confident, but we are trending in the right direction, I would say. Okay, so no new socks then? Nothing new? Uh, I didn't buy any new socks, but uh, so, you know, we're going to Toronto and to, it's, it's ages that I haven't been there and uh, I don't have a pizza place. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll discover a new one. <laughs> You have no pizza place in Toronto to go to? Yes. Yeah, it's true. I've been there only a couple of times. So that's like, uh, it's, um, uh, but it's a, there's a lot of it. There's a very big Italian community. So I think I'm going to find something good well, for sure. Sure. If somebody <laughs> wants to send me a recommendation, I will pass that on for sure. Uh, but Vanny, how do you feel about chicken on pizza? Because I live with somebody who is very opposed to chicken on pizza. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that we Italians consider that we, that shouldn't go. That chicken and chicken is one of the chicken is one of the things. But at the end, uh, pizza is is uh, pizza equals love. So if for you you want to put chicken on it, I will let you do it. I'm not gonna do it, but okay, yeah. But uh, you're gonna judge I love me you for anyway. Well, pizza is language of love. So you know, even even the even the pineapple on pizza that uh, it's something that can 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 make you go to jail in italy if you want to do it if you if you like it why not no problem see this is why we love you this is why we listen good luck this weekend <laughs> thank you so much that's, bye, bye. <laughs> that's Van- danny sartini coach of the vancouver whitecaps good luck with the game good luck with finding a pizza place in toronto and yes if you have recommendations sure send them to me i'll pass them on to the team uh simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi Big news in the last 24 hours. It's approval from the federal government that has allowed the B.C. government, apparently, to now decide to prohibit the possession of illegal drugs or use them in specific public spaces like playgrounds, you know, wading pools, skate parks, things like that. So this was effective from Monday. And we've heard many communities expressing concern about drug use in public areas, right? Uh, Port Coquitlam, Kamloops, Prince George, Penticton, you name it. They've either passed or considered bylaws to restrict drug use in those public places. And this has also been an issue, of course, over in Nanaimo. So joining us now for more on this is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Always a pleasure and an honor. What did you think about this? Were you happy to hear this? Look, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. But if we really believe that uh, decriminalization in the formal sense, as opposed to what the police were doing for years, which is frankly ignoring people with small amounts of drugs for personal possession, uh, is, is a good thing, then frankly, this, you, should, you should allow use of drugs everywhere because it's okay. I mean, what this really acknowledges is that this is not popular with the public, this is not solving problems, and this is not reducing the stigma attached to drug use. I appreciate there's always this uh, concern, if you will, uh, that the, the stigma is attached to the users. The stigma is attached to, pe- to the use of drugs, not to the individuals. And what this really acknowledges for me is that uh, it ain't working, it ain't popular, 
And uh, perhaps we need to reconsider the whole concept of the open use of drugs in our streets, wherever it is. Do you think this will make any kind of a difference for your community? Uh, Modest, if anything at all. Um, Our council passed a motion asking for a report. We got back the report that everyone knew we would get back, basically, which says, look, um, the law is fairly clear. You can't, you're not going to be able to fine anybody. Uh, and what's the sense of fining somebody who's prepared to use drugs in the streets? Because chances are they're living in dire poverty in the most horrible circumstances now and aren't going to be impacted by it. Uh, so basically you're told it's unenforceable for practical purposes. And I don't see much change as a result of this. Has anything changed in Nanaimo? There's been so much attention focused on your community in the last you know, six months or so. Is anything improving? Well, look, I mean, the, the government continues to put money into local housing, which is very important. Uh, some units will be opening up later this month. I just did a tour yesterday of, of uh, three sites uh, operated by Pacifica Housing, which is doing a wonderful job in our community. Um, but overall, the numbers of people who are in our streets, who are living in our streets, the numbers of people living in the kind of misery we've talked about before in your show, Uh, hasn't changed. Uh, The fact is, I still have not seen, and I'll be entirely nonpartisan when I say this, I haven't seen the kind of commitment from either the government or the official opposition or indeed any political party to deal with this realistically, given the incredible amount of concern that is expressed to me day in, day out around the whole issue of mental health, addictions, trauma, brain injury, the petty crime associated with illicit drug use, etc. Um, things aren't getting better, and I think the this is a reaction uh, to what the government must be hearing. Uh, I, you know, I appreciate the police chiefs are are still saying um, decriminalization is a good thing, and you know what? I don't think people should go to jail because they use drugs, but I don't think society wants people using drugs in the streets. Uh, we restrict the smoking in the in the streets, so to speak. We restrict alcohol consumption in the streets. We regulate these things. Um, what I want to see is the kind of housing and supports for people who are in addiction. It, at the end of the day, when you are in addiction or you're suffering from mental health or brain injury, you need society's help. You don't need condemnation. But if this this isn't going to reduce stigma, which is the whole point I gather of the of the program, uh, nobody's ever going to say, "Gee, Johnny, you know, congratulations on getting to 21 years of age and getting your bachelor's." You know, Granny and Granny and you can go out and uh, smoke smoke some crack together. I mean, it's it's not going to happen. So why do we pretend? You said something a few minutes ago that was interesting. You said you see neither the government nor the opposition offering anything realistically to deal with this. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean by realistically? What would work, do you think? Re- realistically is a, is a, a significant commitment around the, the money that's required. I've said it before in your show. I've said it over and over again. We found hundreds of billions of dollars to deal with covid And we spent it uh, wildly in many cases, both provincially and federally, and no one raised a peep about it. But the people in our streets, the people who are living in hell, as I've said, and creating, making it hell for others are still there. We need the, we need the money for universities to train the folks to, 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 to look after, care for and manage and work in the kind of care settings that are required. We need the money for the bricks and mortar. And we need the government to acknowledge what I keep hearing, and we need the 
official opposition. I, I had a meeting with Mr. Falcon the other week. Uh, I think he gets it. I believe the government gets it. But I'm not seeing the kind of overwhelming commitment that is required to deal with this. Certainly not if if my political antenna are, are accurate, and I think they are because my council feels the same way. Uh, we need a lot more to be done. We're all tired. We're all very tired, and we're saddened and frustrated and angered and a range of emotions, and we just reflect what the public is telling us. Okay, but you, the opposition's also this week been calling for like an end to this decriminalization experiment. Yes, 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 they have. Which kind of runs and, counter and, and, to what and, you're saying there, too. No, 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 no. I'm, when I'm talking about commitment, I'm talking about the money required. The decriminalization in and of itself is not going to fix somebody who's deep in addiction, right? You need, you need detox, you need a continuum of care, you need supports. So let's, let's be clear what I'm talking about. Uh, I have called repeatedly for secure and voluntary care for the worst and most difficult cases, which would be decided by people with a kind of medical and, and health expertise that's needed to make those decisions. Uh, I believe Mr. Falcon supports that. I believe the Premier basically supports that. But we're not seeing that kind of very clear direction or response from the government. I think many of us are hoping and expecting that the fall session uh, will see some announcements uh, that will give people hope. Right now, in communities across this province, and you've mentioned the communities, you know, you're hearing from mayors and citizens, small business people, uh, that the street disorder they see uh, is not getting any better. It is driving away uh, business. It is harming people's ability to earn livelihoods. And it's destroying, if you will, all of the work that many communities have gone to upgrade their downtowns. Yeah. And it's actually, it's not necessarily what's actually happening. It's the appearance of it, to be honest. The, the crime in the streets is not necessarily worse now than it was last year or the year before. But the appearance of the disorder and the and the frightening sights of people who are right. clearly not in control of themselves drives away folks. Now, Mayor Krogh, next week is the Union of BC Municipalities Convention. That's usually a time when municipalities have an opportunity to put things on the government's agenda. Does this seem to you like it will be the big topic? Uh, it, it certainly was last year. I can tell you that's 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 the talk in the corridors. That's what people are talking about. That's what they're concerned about. I have no reason to believe it'll be any different this year. Uh, we've arranged our meetings with uh, many ministers, and I'm extremely grateful to the government that they have the ministers are taking the time to meet with us, as they are with other mayors and councils, regional districts around the province. Um, you know, this is a, a human problem that requires the cooperation of everybody in the legislature and all British Columbians. It requires a commitment to, to recognize that we... <laughs> We, what we're doing isn't working. Uh, the safe supply, uh, Mark Mallett, the physician from Victoria, the PC did in the Globe and Mail, saying the unwitnessed safe supply of opioids is just wrong because it's now, there is evidence that those drugs are getting down into high schools to young people who think, oh, this is safe stuff. Well, the, the consumption of serious drugs that we have historically uh, criminalized, if you will, is, is by and large not a healthy thing to do, right? It's just not healthy. Yeah. That's so true. Uh, Mayor Krogh, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
I appreciate it. Yeah, keep it. Keep it up. Cheers. Appreciate the discussion. That's Leonard Krogh, mayor of Nanaimo, talking about the decision by the NDP yesterday to say, all right, you know what? No more public use of drugs. No, uh, prohibit the possession of illegal drugs in public spaces like playgrounds, spray pools, wading pools, skate parks. And they said there's more coming on that front, but will it be enough to make the public feel like something is being done? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.